online radio show. I'm so glad that you joined today. Let's go ahead and start the right way by bowing our heads, humbling our hearts. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us for those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. King of kings, thank you for this day. Thank you for the privilege of being yours. Lord, we pray that throughout this hour, the message of your good news will resonate. Thank you for my dear sister in Christ today who's willingly sharing her story so we can continue to see the hope of glory that you, day in and day out, manifest in people's lives. God, thank you for this privilege. We love you. We praise you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome. Welcome, everyone, to the Kingdom Work for Christ online radio show. I'm so, so glad you're here. You're in for a treat because I have my dear sister in Christ, Kathy Hoffman, on the line today. And we're going to be talking about what it means to have the privilege of parenting and specifically to be a praying parent today. Those of you tuning in for the first time, you may be wondering, what is kingdom work for Christ? What does it mean? So let me go ahead and give you a little bit of background. Kingdom, kingdom work, work for Christ different. is the full-time job of accepting Jesus as the Lord of your day-to-day. So it's inviting Jesus to take over the day-to-day. And we, kingdom work for Christ very specifically has to do with Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So Jesus, within the context of coming and living the perfect life we should have lived if we hadn't sinned, and dying the death that we should have died because we did sin, and resurrecting and conquering death, which we get to partake in when we follow him 
And we say yes to his offer of salvation and sanctification. So Jesus, after doing that, before returning to the Father, gave his followers a beautiful set of instructions. And he said this. He said, one, know that all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Then, two, therefore, go make disciples of nations. Three, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Four, teach them to obey my commandments. And five, know that I'm with you always till the end of the age. And so that great commission, that invitation to have the Lord take over the day-to-day, that's what the kingdom worker for Christ gets to do on a day-to-day basis. And so on this show, we've talked about gossip. What does it mean to be a kingdom worker for Christ when you're dealing with gossip situations? What does that mean when you're dealing with people who are chronically ill, people who have come and seen near-death experiences, people who are in the workplace, people who are youth, people who are young adults, people who are in marriages that are broken, people who have lost hope? And are considering suicide. So we've talked about a slew of things on this show. Most recently, for 2017, we have started to talk about the privilege of a praying parent. And the testimony you're about to hear is rather miraculous. But the neat part is that Kathy has has agreed to share with us what was happening in the background what was happening with prayer, what was happening with perseverance, what was happening with the body of Christ coming together so that she could witness a miracle. So, Kathy, how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm so glad you joined us, and and you are my victim for the next hour, my friend. Okay. (laughs) Famous last words, says she says it reluctantly. Well, welcome to the show, Kathy. I want to brag about you a little bit um, before we start. So Kathy is an incredible sister in Christ who's just got so much compassion, and um, I've, I've been incredibly blessed to know her over the past few years. Um, Kathy is someone who just uh, it gives of herself, uh, and sometimes despite herself, <laughs> unfortunately, and um, but really has a, a heart for the Lord, and and um, it's and, and it is as real as it gets. You'll see <laughs> as we talk through the hour. So one of the things that I'm really really honored that Kathy has um, agreed to do today is to come and talk about her situation with her son. And so part of the introduction for Kathy, I want to let our listeners know that Kathy has a son. Um, his name is Jason, who was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. And we'll learn more about what that means um, at at a pretty young age, actually near birth. And um, Kathy has essentially journeyed with him through that. But in the process has had a full-time job, um, has raised her son. And it's just uh, um, amidst many different circumstances that um, she'll probably either share or not share (laughs) throughout the hour. Um, but, But in all that, she managed to do that while successfully continuing to be a project manager in various fields, um, very specifically in telecom, and most recently diverted um, her full-time attention to dealing with her son's situation, which we'll learn more about today. Um, as a result for that, I will shamelessly make 
make a plug that Kathy is um, currently looking for a job. And so if you are, if you have something, please email the show afterwards and we will get you connected. She's amazing um, with a lot of experience. So contact at kingdomworkforchrist.com. In any case, welcome, Kathy. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I, I want to stop talking because people who are tuning in are probably like, okay, uh, when is Kathy going to talk? So <laughs> did you have a hard time finding the place? No, because I live right across the building from you, and you can look into my apartment. I keep my blinds closed. (laughs) That's right. I do have stalking tendencies. What can I say? (laughs) Well, um, I'm so glad you you made it. So one of the things I want to start out with, and this is something that I love to do right off the bat with our interviewees on the show, is to learn about how you even came to a relationship with Jesus, where you get to be stuck with me on a show about Christ, um, you know, on a wonderful 2017 evening. So <laughs> do you mind sharing that with us? Uh, no, not at all. Um, it was a, uh, actually it was November of 2009, and I had actually been laid off, and I was going through a separation with uh, my ex-husband. And it was just such a difficult time that I just remember um, just kind of reading through the Bible because a friend of mine had given me one, and I'm not well-versed in the Bible at all. And I just remember just reading, and I just started crying. I just was crying and just kind of said, God, you have to help me. And I had friends who were encouraging me um, to join a Bible study, I did not know what a Bible study meant. I actually thought it meant that you were sitting around in a circle reading the Bible. Had no idea. <laughs> so I was kind of a little bit uh, hesitant. And so I went to the Bible study. It was actually uh, January 17, 2010. And it was... So anyway, I... That's what was going on. I knew something was up that day. Yeah. So uh, I met met Emma, and I met the most beautiful women I have ever encountered and forged a wonderful relationship with them. And in their love and in their belief and their love for Jesus, uh, it grew my relationship with Jesus. And so I was extremely blessed to to meet these women and to still have these women in my life. Wow, well said. <laughs> Are we paying you these days for, for this PR? Uh, not yet, but you'll get my bill. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's so great. Um, wow, so when you came, first of all, amazing memory. January 17, 2010, that's pretty impressive. But when you came, what was your appeal? What kept you going back to the Bible study? Um, What actually kept me going back was there was a young girl who uh, had just, it was her first Bible study also, and we were literally sitting on the couch holding each other's hands because we had no idea what was going on, and but it was remarkable to hear 
um, these women talk um, and and express their belief and why they had their beliefs. So what it was was intriguing to me, and I wanted to keep learning more, but I also wanted to just for the compassion that they showed and how they just reached out and encompassed us both into their folds to give us and help us and guide us to understanding more of uh, Jesus or God's word and the gospel. But the big thing is, is that they took the time to listen and they also took that a draw kept bringing me back. I love that you you brought that up, Kathy, because one of the things that we touched upon last time was who God the parent is. And that last statement you made about the fact that the listening and the caring and the taking the time and, and, you know, almost the pursuit, essentially, that Jesus was executing through the Bible study is what kept you coming back reminds me of God the parent, right? And and how Jesus prayed this amazing prayer in John 17 that we went through. And through that prayer, we can see that he has a passion for bringing unity um, in his body, the same way that he and the Father are a unit. And and the first point we were talking about is how God God the parent, when we start to understand the extent to which God parents us as his children, we then have the potential to be well-parented, even if we have a lack of birth parents in our current life or adoptive parents in our current life or spiritual parents. God overtakes those responsibilities in such a way that we can keep coming back to him. We can keep coming back to him in safety and with the expectation to grow. Um, and to segue a little bit, so the second point we were also talking about is how the privilege of a, of a praying parent, very specifically, not just parent, but praying parent, is that we get to follow God's parenting so we can properly parent those around us. So whether we are in positions of, physical, of being a physical parent or we are in a position of being an adoptive parent or we're in a position of being a spiritual parent to people, we can properly do that in a way that draws people closer to the Lord. And the third point is perseverance and how that's key. One of the things that led me to specifically ask you to be on the show is that you've had a very recent experience in which your faith and your prayer, very specifically as a parent, um, overtook everything else that you probably have ever done in your life in terms of parenting and, and really brought about some, some revolutionary transformation um, in your son's life. And so before we get to that, the first thing I want to know is, is there a passage that is like your driving passage, right? Or something that you've been reflecting on recently in the Bible? Um, The passage that sustains me, and has for many, all the years um, that I've given myself to Jesus is uh, Philippians 14.3. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And through a lot of adversity um, with multiples of different scenarios, that is the one thing that I keep saying 
especially in the midst of a conflict or what have you, work, personal life, you know, multiple, again, um, avenues, I have to keep that uppermost in my mind that so I don't um, revert into old behaviors, um, lashing out, you know, so on and so forth. We won't get into all that, but um, that is the passage that really I say when I feel that I'm in crisis or when I feel that I have temptation or when I'm starting to feel out of control and anxious. I love that passage. It's it's so telling about the extent to which God will go, um, you know, to, to really hook us up too as his children <laughs> in many respects. Um, I would love to ask you really quickly, what is, what exactly is cystic fibrosis? Um, <clears throat> cystic fibrosis is a genetic disease that his, uh, uh, Jason's father and I are both carriers of. And it was determined that my mother was the carrier of the gene between my father and my mother. Both parents have to have the gene in order to produce a child with cystic fibrosis. In the case of my parents and my mother being the only carrier of six kids, five of us are carriers. And that's um, and so what cystic fibrosis does, it affects basically all the major organs of the body, but primarily the lungs and the digestive system. And what happens, the um, cystic fibrosis in the lungs, where our lungs have a, a thin film coating for the cilia um, in the lung where we cough. The cilia is a small hair like to constantly keep beating to help us cough and keep our lungs clean. In cystic fibrosis, we have a very, they have a very sticky, sticky mucus. And so what happens is that they can't get out this bacteria that we, you know, without CF can cough up and it's gone, but in CF they can't. So what happens is bacteria starts growing. And it starts causing you know, pneumonias and all sorts of different um, viruses. So multiple hospitalizations are required. Um, daily therapy, it's, we call it our maintenance program. And so every day between medication and um, respiratory um, and physical therapy, the, uh, the child will inhale a saline solution <clears throat> or a medicated um, type of uh, antibiotic um, inhalant to help break all of this up. And then we'll each day, morning and night, depending on what's required. Uh, we do physical therapy where we beat, um, beat, not beat, but <laughs> physically you're actually um, you, you're using your hands as a percussor. And uh, what that does is we're beating our children in different positions to help loosen up that mucus. Um, that's our maintenance program. And then, of course, like I said, there is um, a lot of medication. And the other aspect of this is the digestive system. And in cystic fibrosis, um, their pancreas is of no use to them. What the pancreas does is that it secretes uh, fat. It kind of helps absorb fat that our body needs. And so with a cystic fibrosis patient, that does not happen. So um Basically, they cannot gain weight. It's very difficult for them to gain weight. So they are on high-calorie diets, you know, basically protein and 
carbohydrates that we would love to have on a daily basis but so um, these things are other things that we have to take into account for and um, with that we again they have to take uh, because the pancreas is of no use to them we they children with CF have to take supplemental pancreas and so the supplemental pancreas they take depending on age and weight you know, four to five per meal, one to two per snack. And this is a very expensive medication. It's like a dollar ten per pill. And so trying to order in bulk, of course, and then what's happening now we see is in the children, because they have made such great strides in cystic fibrosis, a lot of these children, my son was diagnosed at five months, we were told he wouldn't make it to sixteen. My son is now forty. Um but these, the longevity. I'm sorry, Kathy, I lost you a little bit. Your son is now how old? Uh, 40. Um, so, um, so with the longevity of the kids now, because of the great strides that they have made with this disease, the thing that's happening now is that they've made all these great strides in the pediatric field. But what they've kind of forgotten is there's not a lot of doctors in the adult world. So um, they don't have a a lot of, you know, as adults, children of cystic fibrosis, trying to find clinics with adult CF doctors is is a difficult situation and difficult transition. In fact, my son did not leave his pediatric CF doctor until he was probably in his early, mid-30s. So it's just kind of a funny situation. You know, his doctor was a great doctor, and he had a level of comfort. Wow, I, that's it's amazing because a lot of the details you're sharing, I feel like, is something a lot of people don't really realize about CF um, many times. Thank you for sharing that. I wanted to read a little bit of the passage that you had brought up um, before. And it starts actually with, um, with 12. And it says, I know what it is to have little. And I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. Well, okay, so that's a little bad. But Paul is talking about... The Philippians and, and what, how they have supported him in his time where he was, um, uh, you know, persecuted. So, but within that context, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, talks about that, that complete provision in the good and in the bad. And so what I would love to segue to is, is for you to explain how, that was a pillar passage for you over the past couple of months. What exactly happened and started really a test of faith in many respects? Um, Back in trying to give you a little bit of history to catch you up to the dynamics of what happened in December. Um, Back in 2008, my son lost his right lung in an emergency situation Uh, Due to cystic fibrosis, he was struggling with um, a lot of pneumonias in it and things like that. And then 
it had basically the year before kind of cemented shut. And so he was in a very, very critical situation where what was happening is his left lung was overcompensating. And so it was growing larger and it was pushing his heart over to the right side. So now the valves of the heart were being compromised and being stressed. And so he literally could not physically, he had to just sit and lay very quietly in his bed as they were working, trying to open this lung up, which they did. And this again was his pediatric doctor who was kind of running the show in the critical care, adult critical care. Oh, wow. I can only imagine. Yeah. So in 2008, um, the lung just could not sustain itself in an emergency situation. He had to have his lung removed, and he could not. He was not at that time. They were not prepared for a transplant. So he lost his right lung, um, and he did very well with it, went back to work, uh, within about two months, he was running a mile. Um, you know, the uh, his job didn't really want him back. And they kept saying he couldn't do the job. They were pushing him. He's a paramedic, of all things. So <laughs> he he aims low, apparently. Exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Um, and he was, you know, his bosses and everything were just amazed that here he is with one long, and he was you know, running a mile to two miles every day with the the training group. So um, anyway, uh, in 2011, my son was facing uh, death because he had his one lung and he needed a transplant, but nobody wanted to transplant one lung. Um, His sister-in-law, my son is married to a nurse, and his sister-in-law is a doctor, and she was a doctor down at Duke doing residency. And um, Duke said, no, they weren't going to touch him. Um, uh, John Hopkins said they weren't going to touch him. Vanderbilt said they weren't going to touch him. So his sister-in-law was extremely instrumental in really um, persuading Duke to take on the challenge. So what was the main, well, why exactly they didn't want to, to touch him? They, they did not want to touch him because it was one lung. It was one lung, and it's a very rare Nobody's really had great success in a one lung transplant because you're on life. So it's too high risk. Okay. Yeah, it was an extremely high risk. And Duke had tried it before. And the only words I heard was it was a train wreck. I don't want to hear anymore. So um, in 2011, in April of 2011, actually April 26, 2011, he endured a 12 hour. <laughs> a 12-hour transplant, and he actually did code on the the table, and I felt that uh, God was taking a a minute for him. But one of the things that I want to express in this time frame, my son and I were separated. We were not um, speaking, and uh, what was happening is I had come into Christ uh, in 2009, in 2010, I was pretty much flourishing. In 2011, um, I kept getting, you know, the Holy Spirit just has to nag you. Let's just put it out. Uh, I was getting woken up in the middle of the night with, you know, he has to gain weight. He has to gain weight. And um, I went down to see my son, and he would not see me. And I prayed the whole way down. And instead of crying or being upset, I prayed the whole way back home, and I still had a very comfortable and peace, but my Holy Spirit kept nagging. 
So I left a voicemail for him and I asked him to please just listen to my voicemail because through this time with him losing his lung, he thought he was going to die. I said, no, no, no. And I had a very strong connection with my son, truly just believing in my gut instinct at the time and then learning my gut instinct. I sent him a message uh, on his voicemail and I said, whatever you do, please listen to this voicemail, no matter how crazy it sounds. And so I said, Jason, you know, you believe in my gut instinct. And I said, I need you. You, I said, you're going to survive this transplant, but you need to gain weight and you need to get as strong as possible. And I never heard anything from him. And so when he called me to tell me he was listed, um, I said, I need you to find a quiet place where you have solence. And I want you to give this over to God. And my son has been angry at God for most of his life because of cystic fibrosis. So me saying, hey, give this over to God was, you know, I'm kind of a little bit touchy there. And I didn't hear anything. And the day that he was due to uh, go and he got the call and said, hey, mom, I'm going in. And he goes, how fast can you get here? And I said, I'll be there in an hour and a half. Anyway, he was down at Duke. And I called him back and I said, did you have time to spend with the, with God to um, give this over to him? And he goes, yes. And he goes, you were right. It was a phenomenal feeling. I felt the weight lifted off my shoulders. And I said, fantastic. Wow. Wow. So how did you know, what is it that with certainty made you leave that message? How did you know he was going to make it through? Um, I, I guess when you, you know, parents, you have that connection with your child. I had no qualms. I had no fears. I had nothing um, except peace. I was in a total state of peace and a lot of people thought I was nuts, and I'm okay with that. They you know, think I'm crazy anyway, so I'm still, still good partial with that. <laughs> yeah. Up to being nuts part. <laughs> so, yeah. but Kathy, do you think that you would have had that same sense of peace if this had taken place before you met the Lord? I can't, I can't truthfully answer that yeah. because uh, of uh, uh, the connection my son and I have. Uh, you know, his, his father could not handle his situation. And so we divorced and, um, I was a single parent. So it was always Jason and I, uh, it, you know, through everything thick and thin, whatever transpired, whatever was going on with the hospital, it was always he and I, and I don't know if that connection would have given me that sense of peace. I, I, I can't. I don't. Yeah, and it's 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 definitely a um, a hard question to answer, but I see at the at the very least that you were able to pass on to him, handing it over to God, which you wouldn't have said beforehand. Um, that's pretty powerful. So then, what happens? So, so uh, my son went back to work. Um, <laughs> they didn't want him. Uh, they were trying to get him to be take medical um, disability, and he said, no, I'm not disabled. I can work. And he did. He went back to work as a paramedic. And um, 
very, very successful. successful. And, and then, then uh, uh, in 2010, he started having problems. And his partners were phenomenal. His partners were absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, they were helping him out and stuff like that, and he knew he was in trouble. And so uh, they went down to Duke, and this is when everything kind of transpired with Duke. And anyway, um, Duke decided to go ahead and, and, and do the transplant. And so they did the transplant, and for five and a half years, there's an ex- kind of an expiration date. They say in transplants it's three to five years. And um, my son was very good um, <clears throat> living his life, you know, as he normally had working. <clears throat> but then in, uh, I went down in to see um, he and his wife for Thanksgiving, spent Thanksgiving this year with them. And he wasn't quite acting right. He's always, you know, I'm trying to help them, teach them how to do things around their house. And um, he wasn't quite engaged and he was tired and it was just kind of odd, but he ran a 6K. And um, my son is just very a go-getter and he does a lot of golf tournaments for organ transplant and things like that and for uh, lung transplant. So, <clears throat> but I got a call on December 12th and I was actually um, uh, at home and he said, Mom, he goes, I'm having a problem. I'm going up to Duke Medical. And my son lives in Georgia, two hours south of Atlanta. Um, his brother-in-law uh, is a doctor also, and um, he was driving them, him and his wife up, and he stopped to get oxygen. And so Jason got up to Duke um, in the middle of the night, and I got down at 5.30 and um, he was having problems breathing. And so through the course of the week, what happened is that was a Tuesday morning. Uh, and Friday they were coming in. The transplant team was coming in and telling him that they felt they had to um, incubate him, put a tube down his throat. He was very, very scared. And he was getting very frustrated. And I know my son well. And so what happened is again, I got that sense of calm. And a nurse came in, and this was a great, great nurse, and his name was BJ. And so BJ was like, wow, dude, all this stuff's happening. I'm kind of the last one to know. So I knew my son was very nervous, and so I said, BJ, do you have a minute to talk to us? Um, and so I said, B, so I said, can you explain to us in a quieter sense with not all these people around what's going to, what, what we're looking at. And so he did. And then I knew my son was still very, very anxious. And again, I believe I was God led. And so I said to him, if this was you and you were in this circumstance, DJ, what would you do? And he looked at my son and he said, I would take the, uh, I would, incubate them. I say that all the time. It's wrong. Um, I would take that. And Jason, if they have to put you what they call on ECMO, he goes, do what you need to do. And it's calmed my son down. And so they took him up to the ICU and they incubated him. And my stepdaughter had come down and we were staying with some friends and um, it was Sunday night and we were kind of told, hey, go on home. Everything's okay. They were going to kind of flip Jason over on 
his stomach and see if they could give the lung a little bit of rest. The reason that they put ventilated him was to help rest the lung because Jason was having uh, panic. What was happening, he couldn't get air, and so he was panicking, which was making things worse. And so um, what they did is they said, you know, go on home. Everything will be fine. This was a Sunday evening. So went back to where we were staying. Uh, my stepdaughter and some friends went out to see a movie, and I just stayed at home. And I got a call from um, my daughter-in-law's sister, Mary, and she, she said, oh, you know, um, everything's good. And I said, okay, great. And then 40 minutes later, my uh, stepdaughter called, and she goes, what, what happened? What just, what's going on? What just happened? I go, what do you mean? What do you mean? So it was all this chaos. She goes, I was just told to get up to the hospital. We need to get back up to the hospital. I said, oh, my gosh. So we ran up to the hospital, and we were told that they had to put my son on ECMO, and ECMO is just not something you want to hear because it is life support. And um, so, uh, you know, they said, come on in, say goodbye. You know, it's probably going to be an hour and a half before the team gets up there. So we're in his room. My son is in a slight in a coma. They kind of put him out so that he could not get upset and disruptive because he could hear things and they was trying to pull things out. So they sedated him. And um, then because of this situation, they sedated him even more. Why well, I'm not kidding. Within 15 minutes, the whole hallway was full of all these people. I mean, they were all there to do this ECMO and it was very scary. So very scary. And we were, they were waiting on the surgeon. And so one of the friends that was there, we were all kind of standing around his bed, and I really wanted to pray for him, but sometimes I get a little shy about that. But a friend of ours, Karen, um, just she just stepped forward, and she said, I want us all to gather around this Jason's bed. Let's hold hands. I want to say a prayer. The nurse said, oh, this isn't my gig. I'm out of here. I was pretty stunned by that, but... Anyway, knowing that my son was getting a prayer said over him before they were going to start, that just gave me a level of comfort. I do have to admit I was rattled. I was so rattled by all of this, you know, first, you know, two hours before everything was fine, too. We were in an emergency situation. So when we were walking out of the room, I saw the surgeon, and I just said, that's my son. And I said, you need to take care of him. And he goes, yes, ma'am. And I do admit at that time I was... So I was scared. I was scared. And so um, the ACMO came, and then the next day was Monday, and we were pulled into a room in the afternoon, and we were told, be prepared. And I just sat there thinking, what are you prepared for what? Nothing's going to happen. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask you. Prepared for, they were saying prepared for the worst? Yes. Yes. Got it. They were were telling us to prepare for the worst at... There just uh, was really no hope because things were really, really bad. And, um, you know, again, one of the saving graces I believe we truly had was Mary. Mary uh, was literally in South Carolina working, and she was orchestrating everybody at Duke because as a resident she knew every single doctor that was involved, and she was calling everybody. And they were all kind of jumping through our hoops. But 
very, very smart woman, and I just remember sitting in that room and thinking, there's nothing, why are they saying this? Nothing's going to happen. Why were you so, what was going on with you, again, with with that certainty? Um, I can't say what the certainty is, except there was a burning feeling in my stomach that kept saying, no, I'm not going to happen, no. And that's what I kept holding on to. I will state that I did falter through the week. Um, I met some amazing people. I remember one day I was very upset and I went for a walk and I went to the chapel on the Duke campus, which is absolutely phenomenally beautiful. I'm very attracted to churches for the architect. But anyway, I remember sitting in the back of the church and I was kind of bent over. I was crying. And I was praying to God, saying to him, you gave my son a superior lung on his transplant. Why are you going to take this away from him? This makes no sense to me. And this was when I was faltering. And I was back there crying. I was sitting in a little corner crying. And I kept saying that. I said, you you can't take give him a miracle and take it away. I can't conceive of this. I have no concept of why would you do this to him. Please, please don't do this. And next thing, I guess about 30 minutes later, uh, a woman came, rolled up to me in a wheelchair, and she handed me a box of Kleenex. And she said, can I pray for you? And I said, no, you can pray for my son. And she goes, would you like to go in the smaller chapel and light a candle? And I said, absolutely. And she said, I'm going to put a prayer request out to all of my uh, prayer warriors uh, here at the church. And she said, so we'll get your you know, prayers said, which made me cry even more because here's a stranger taking on you know, prayers for my son. And it gave me immense peace. That's so amazing, and and that's the privilege of being a parent. You get to see miracles like that when you lean in on God. I mean, that God loves you so much as a parent that he would send you someone to literally be an intercessor for you in the middle of the chapel when you're asking him, why are you taking Why would you do this? And he's like, I'm not mad at you. Just like a parent, I'm going to give you comfort. I'm going to take care of you while I'm working out my process. Ah, beautiful. I think, I think one, one, of the, of the, one of the beautiful, beautiful stories I have in that time frame is kind of funny. One of them was, I really desperately needed a haircut. So I was like going to super cuts. It was just trim my hair and I need to get out of there as fast as I can. And I walk in and here's this one stylist who has pink and blue hair. And I went, Lord, help me. Please let her cut my hair without (laughs) doing anything damage. Mohawk, no. (laughs) Uh, And she was just the nicest and kindest individual and so gracious. And I was struggling and I was, trying not to cry but I also wanted to hurry up and she goes are you okay and I said um yeah uh, my son's at Duke Medical um I I need to get there and she said is he okay I said no he's in the ICU on life support and she goes well let she goes I'll pray for you and I'll put I'll 
put a word out for my friends to pray. And I said, that would be wonderful. So and so that's the next, after the chapel, lady? This was before the chapel. Before the chapel. I'm sorry, oh, I'm trying wow. to get my sequences. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So after the chapel, um, the next morning I had to go to Jiffy Lube. My car was, you know, I was late getting the oil change, and I'm kind of really, you know, particular about that. And so I was in Jiffy Lube, and you know how you get out, and they want to, you know, I said to the guy, I said, please don't try to upsell me on everything. I just need to have the oil change and air in my tires, please. And I was struggling that morning so hard. And my stepdaughter and I were having, you know, talking and she was crying and I had been crying that morning. And she said something to me, which was holding me together. She said, you know, Kathy, she said, when you become anxious and fearful, that means you're losing your faith and you need to take a step back and put that faith in God. And I remember those, those words also were something that sustained me through that time frame. So I met Jiffy Lube, I'm getting checked out, and um, there was an elderly uh, man there. He was an elderly black man, and I'm sniffing, and I'm trying to wipe my eyes so I can, you know, sign my name to the to the documentation and put my, num- you know, the, credit card and all this sort of stuff. It's allergies wipe. Yeah. It's yeah. not a, these are not tears, these are allergies. Like, yeah. Right. right. <laughs> and, you know, as I'm sitting there and I'm trying to write, he put his hand over my, mine and he said, and if I start crying, I'm sorry, but it's, he just said, can I pray for you? And I just remember looking at him and I just started crying. I said, please pray for my son. He's in the ICU and he's on life support. And he said, yes, ma'am. He goes, I'll call my friends and we'll put a prayer chain out. And I said, that would be beautiful. And I remember him walking to my car and opening the door for me. And I remember him taking my hand again. He goes, your son's going to be okay. I said, I know. I know that. But right now I'm struggling. And he goes, everything will be okay. And I just remember that distinctly. And so it was just a lot of strangers just coming out to and saying, hey, everything's going to be okay. And I know when I got myself into the right mindset to say, okay, God, look, you know, we're going to take care of this. I was always at peace. But when I would be around people who were crying, um, I would start kind of getting upset. And I do remember several occasions when my daughter-in-law's family is all medical. Her father's a doctor. Uh, two of her sisters are doctors. She's a nurse. Her mom's a nurse practitioner. So they're very medical. And they kept trying to tell me that I was in denial. And I really was getting very mad and going, I'm not in denial. I'm not in denial at all. I know 100% for sure my son is going to pull through this and he's going to be okay. And I know that they thought I was nuts and crazy and in denial and everything like that. I was okay. I actually was okay. Wow, what a testimony. And what was going on in the background as well? Because, and I have a little bit more information over our listeners here, but um, when everything went down, you actually went to the Lord first in many respects can you talk a little bit about how that that happened 
I know. I know that, that one night I was um, I was uh, trying to sleep and I couldn't, and I wear a cross and I remember holding on to my cross was I and it was in bed. I was on my side and I was just holding on my cross and I just I kept saying the Our Father. That's the only thing that I could cohesively think of to say. And I kept saying, I said, I know that you've got this. I know you've got this. I've known you've got this. I even told my son before uh, he went up to ICU, and it was just he and I. I said, I need you to understand you're going to be okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? And he says, yes. The funny thing is, is God has talked to me. I'm backtracking a little bit, but kind of brings you into the situation there's times when I say things to my son, like, I don't know why I'm saying this. And so back in May, I was down there visiting and helping him with the yard and getting, you know, painting and things like that. We were in his, his new, in the shed and um, just overcame me. And I said, Jason, I said, I'm not sure why I'm going to say this. I said, but I need you to start, you need to start working out. You need to start working out and getting strong, and you need to get gain weight. Now, my son never says anything to me. You know, he just looks at me, probably, you know, what's, she's nuts, you know. But anyway, I see him on Facebook at the gym next day at the gym. And every day after that, he was at the gym. And so I was talking to his sister-in-law, Mary, and explaining to her um, because she heard the voicemail that I originally left for him before he had his transplant to say, hey, this is what you need to do. And she had, she's the only reason I know anything what happened. She said he came running and he, um, and she said he gave me goosebumps. And she said, and we calculated how many calories he needed before his transplant. And I am not kidding. My son looked good before his transplant. I mean, he looked good. And so, so he's got, <laughs> and it helped him to recover. It, it helped him to recover, to recover uh, because, because he, he had uh, a lot of good muscle mass. Even though he's a kind of a, a small guy, he had good muscle mass. In fact, I was really impressed by his arms. He had great definition. I was telling him that, and this was during the week prior to ICU, and I said, hey, you got some great definition in your arms he goes I do and I go yeah they look really good and so what it was as Mary said that preparing him or not knowing why that I think you prepared him for this situation she said because he did have extra weight on him and he did have good muscle tone and she said because he was going to he you know he was in he was in ICU for over two well probably three weeks we spent Christmas there uh we can't barely remember it people coming down um you know i kind of felt these people were coming down to say goodbye and i went what are you saying goodbye you're not saying goodbye to him and i was getting myself upset over that i go how dare you to think you come down here to say goodbye you're not um so anyway uh he my daughter-in-law insisted that he go on dialysis and they had already reached the point where they thought there was no hope. And they kept pushing, no, there's no hope. We need to really consider letting him go. And I'm sitting there still in disbelief going, what do you mean letting him go? He's not going anywhere. 
he's coming out of this. Um, and so I was getting myself very upset with the doctors. Where's your hope? Where is your hope? And so um, they, uh, she insisted upon the dialysis, and it started really changing things because it was taking the pressure off the water, off of his, you know, off his body, the excess ECMO makes you swell up. And it started his lung that had just turned into a fist was now starting to open up again. And it was literally blossoming. And Emma and I have a friend who is a fantastic artist. And she texted me one morning and she said, her text said, I was in my prayer chair. I must have fallen asleep. I got a vision that was so crystal clear I had to share it with you. She said, Jesus is in the room with Jason. He has his right hand on Jason's left side. And his, he's got in his left hand IV tubes that are his wrapped around his hand, enmeshed into his hand. And she said, Kathy, God is, Jesus is with him. And that vision sustained me, especially in my times of when I was faltering in my faith. I remembered that picture. And we were told not to pray over my son. And I was like, you got to be kidding me, really? Because they felt if he woke up that he would think it was the last rites. And I was like, forget it. And so I was praying over my son constantly uh, when I would be able to go in and see him. And I was also telling him, I said, I need you to know that Jesus is here with you, Jason. And I explained the vision that was given to me. And I said, you're going to be okay. I need you to know you know that, don't you? You're going to be okay. Of course, you never know if they can hear you or not. But I want to let everyone know that on New Year's Day, they started waking my son up. And... um he is leaving uh, Duke Medical on January 31st and going back home. Hallelujah. I am. Woo! I got chills and I got joy and my heart is just uh, beating about 10,000 miles an hour. That is incredible, Kathy. Yes. And the thing that's so amazing about everything you're talking about is that I, as you were speaking about the different God moments throughout, I was thinking about what that would look like without that, right? And you were saying a moment ago, where's your hope? You know, how, what are you doing? Giving up on my son, where's your hope? And, and that's the thing is that the hope outside of the context of Jesus is not there, you know? And, and so the privilege of a praying parent is you not only get to see that hope take effect when things get hopeless, you also get to know how hopeless you get, but yet have the Lord bring in people along the way to really sustain you, you know, and, and I just love the fact that you had four different groups, not just people, but groups of people praying. You had the Bible study and you were constantly sending prayer requests. And, you know, for those of you listening, if you're going through a situation where you have a loved one who is in that situation or people, you know, who are undergoing that use the body of Christ to request the prayer you need. 
do not do this on your own. That is one of the most powerful things you did last month, Kathy. And then you had a group of people because an email went to the great banquet who were praying for you. And along the way, complete strangers sending out prayer requests to their individual groups. You know, it's like God's army was literally dispatched. (laughs) Oh, it was amazing because, you know, he has friends, so many friends around and they had so many prayer chains and prayer requests going out and we, you know, family putting it out on Facebook, please, you know, we need prayer requests and things like that. And it was amazing that how many people were willing to stop for a moment and say a prayer, you know, for my son. I think one of the most telling things that uh, came of this, I um, had to step out of Jason's room one night. It was a Friday night, and uh, they were going to do an x-ray, and then the doctor came up, and he goes, um, he was like, oh, I've got to wait. And he goes, and and who are you? (laughs) And I looked at him. I go, well, I'm Jason's mother, no other identity. I have no name, just Jason's mother. And kind of joking about it and everything like that. And then I said, my name is Kathy. And he said, I got to tell you, this this kid's amazing. And um, I I looked at him and I said, it's a miracle. And he goes, it is a miracle because I will tell you, this defies medical logic. Boom, drop the mic. Thank you, Jesus. Absolutely. This defies medical logic indeed. Oh, I just love that. I love that. Kathy, um, can you believe it? We're actually at the bottom of our hour. <laughs> and it's been so, so, so rich. Um, one of the, I want to recap a little bit within the context of what we've been talking about. Um, one, who God the parent is. God the parent is the, is the parent who will hook you up with backup, with hope. He'll hook you up with with people who care, even the people that you have not met yet. God the parent is the one who will give you the salvation and the sanctification to undergo the good and the bad. As my sister in Christ so beautifully put it, Philippians 4.13, you can and will do all things through Christ who will strengthen you. And so it's it's an amazing, amazing testimony you got going on there, Kathy. The other thing we talked about is that as a praying parent, you have the privilege of being the one who parents well under the unction of God the parent, following the footsteps of God the parent, following the experiences God the parent has put in your path. And you get to be the one who perseveres. (laughs) So if you're in this situation right now, brother, sister in Christ, you need to be the last one standing under all costs. You are the intercessor in charge, and you are the person capable to spread that good news of the gospel through the way you carry yourself. Even if God's response through your prayer is for healing through death, you still need to be the last one standing. And that may be a very difficult thing for people to hear as you're listening if you are in that situation. But do know that the Lord hears in all all circumstances. So I am so, so humble that you came on the show, Kathy. What do you have as parting comments for people who, who may be going through this right now? One of the things I, I wanted to say as a real quick is my son is not a believer. And I am slowly working on him 
And as I let him know, uh, my God has been watching over my son through all of his life for some of the dumbest things he's ever done to providing him now with two miracles. And I know that this is my opening to start pushing and saying you need to honor your donor and you need to honor the fact that God has provided you with a second miracle. And I hope that that God will guide God will guide me in starting to help my son become a believer. So uh, what was the question? (laughs) Went off that one. Kind of went off the rails there, you know. Uh, No worries. Um, uh, Very specifically, what what parting advice do you have for people in in a similar situation? One of the things that I would uh, to say is any parent who has a child uh, who has some type of a terminal disease is first and foremost is let the child tell you what they need instead of you telling the child. Because we have to understand first and foremost they have the disease, we live with it. So they know what's best, basically really even young children pretty much know what's best for them. But as a, as a Christian, as becoming a Christian, only basically really kind of new to Christianity, is to know that I have found, uh, and I've been in a tribulation and trials and tribulations here in these past couple of years, that, and I explained to Emma last night, I had a huge epiphany that uh, watching TV somewhat and that one sentence came out that struck me was, you've already walked through hell, now you're walking towards the light. And it hit me so hard because I was like, I've already walked through hell. Why am I still complaining? And it brought me to my knees. Uh, I was crying sobbing and all I could say was thank you Lord thank you Lord for your graciousness through all these hard times that I've been through for these past couple of years and most of all for bringing me out of the darkest time and so really the bottom line is faith faith and know that you have hope always hallelujah well let's pray heavenly father thank you Uh, Thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you that in his holy name we can pray, Lord, and we can expect for you to continue to act the same way you acted, Lord, and today. Father, thank you for the beautiful testimony that Kathy shared with us. Lord, we pray fervently for all who do not yet believe in you, Lord, and we thank you for the pursuit that you're continuing to um, exercise on a daily basis. Use us, God, as you please. And may we stand out of the way when we need to and boldly in the way when you need to use us, Lord. Thank you for who you are. Amen. Well, everyone, um, I actually want to turn the... Mike, one last time before we say goodbye to Kathy, as she has one more thing for us. I think uh, for closing, I just want to say is stay in faith and always have hope. Thank you so much for listening. 
Amen. I couldn't have said it better, Kathy. Thank you so much for being on the show, Kathy. This was amazing. Absolutely. Thank you you for having me. Anytime. Anytime you want to put up with the torture. (laughs) You're welcome to come back. I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) Surviving barely. Absolutely. (laughs) Guys, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. So, so humbled and glad to serve you in this capacity. Tune in next time as we're going to continue to see how God is well active today. Have a blessed night. Bye-bye. Thank you.